Well, thank you all for gathering with us here today on this Lord's Day here at Mission Church. And for those of you logging in on Facebook Live today, uh, we're glad that you have chosen to join us as well. Uh, my name is Eric Baker. I'm one of the pastors here at Mission Church. And so again, it is my honor, my privilege to stand before you today to uh, preach the Word of God. And so if you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Exodus, the book of Exodus chapter 14. I am going to read the entire chapter uh, 14 today, so please follow along with me. If you do not have a Bible, there should be a Bible located somewhere on the aisle in front of you. Um, please feel free to use that Bible. If you do not own a Bible, uh, then please take that Bible as a gift from um, our church family to you. Um, before I dive into reading God's Word, man, I just want you to tell everybody, look at me. I know it's crazy. I love you. You're awesome. All right. Exodus 14. Let's read the Word of the Lord. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pihirah and between Migdal and the sea, in front of Bel Zephon, you shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, they are wandering in the land, the wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart and will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all of his hosts, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they said and did so. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants had changed toward the people. And they said, what is this we have done, that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made us ready for his chariot. So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all other chariots of Egypt with officers all over all of them. And the Lord hardened the Pharaoh, the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them. All Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army and overtook them and camped by the sea by Pi-Hithroth in front of Bel-Zephon. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them and they feared greatly and the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, it is because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness. What have you done to us bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You only have to be silent. 
The Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell me the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, and the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all of his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord and I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the angel of the God, angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was a cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove back the sea by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them, on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them in the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watched the Lord in the pillar of fire and the cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into panic, clogging their chariot wheels. So they, they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, Let us free from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course. When the morning appeared, and the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned to cover the chariots and the horsemen and of all the host of the Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained, but the people of Israel walked on dry ground through, sea, through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus, the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. This is the word of the Lord. If you're going to know anything about the Bible, we need to understand and know that the story of Exodus, and specifically even this crossing of the Red Sea, is probably the most significant story outside of the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. Much of the Old Testament, again, points back to the Exodus story, and even this particular story. It is all coming to a point, to a spearhead, pointing to the person and work of Jesus as the true and better Exodus. We've got to get a grasp on this story that was the Israelites, and yet it is the story of the early church 
And yet it is the story of Mission Church. It is your story. It is my story for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. When we look to the passage in chapter 14 that we just read to you guys, again, we see that the Israelites have been set free, that God is leading them, and that they are following God. In this pillar of fire and and clouds, God is leading them toward the promised land, but he is taking the long way to get there. And in that, he comes to a particular body of of land and of water, and we see inside of chapter 14 this really staggering thing that can easily be missed. In those first few verses there, in verse 2, God tells Moses and leads them this way and, and by telling them that they're heading in the opposite direction of Egypt, but notice what God says to do. He tells them to turn around. He tells them to turn around. Now, it does not take much warlike strategy to recognize that is a terrible decision. You are fleeing from the Egyptian pharaoh, 600 men and chariots chasing after you, You are men, women, elderly, young, baby to people on their deathbed. You are weighed down with gold and silver and jewels. You have livestock and you are trying to get away from these people. And yet, what does the Lord say to do? Turn around. Turn around. Literally, God is is doing something here. And it appears to be that he is um, entrapping the Israelites. Surely they are going to die. This is dumb. You've got the sea to your back or to the head of you now because you've, you've returned backward. You've turned this mass gathering of people wandering through the wilderness around and you have encamped now through the night, maybe in particular several days, we don't know exactly, um, between the Red Sea and the Israelite army that you know is coming for you. And yet this trap is not for the Israelites. This trap is ultimately going to be reviewed or for the Egyptians. In verse 4, we see that God says, I'm going to save you. I'm going to do this so that I will be the only one to receive the glory. I am going to receive the salvation. I'm going to put you in the most illogical way of salvation. I'm going to, I'm going to put you in a, in a situation that when this is all said and done and when it will be written about, that they can only say that it is God, Yahweh, I am who I am, who has delivered these people. It is going to be foolish to the world. But it will be wise for those who follow after God. God says there that I will receive the glory. Now the Hebrew word there um, has to actually do with weight. What God is declaring in this moment is that He is going to flex His power and His might, that He is going to lay a suppressive weight not upon the Israelites, 
but rather upon the Egyptians. It has to do, which if you know much about Egyptian history, I can't go into this today, but they have a the whole, when you die, they pretty much, your life is weighed on a scale. And depending on how that scale tips determines whether where you go in the afterlife. God says in this moment, in the weight of His own glory, that He is going to tip the scales into His favor. That it is ultimately all about God. This deliverance, this rescue, this salvation is all about God. I will be heavy upon them. In the words of the great Puritan pastor, uh, Jonathan Edwards, one of my favorites, in his famous sermon called The Sinners on the Hands of the Angry God, it talks about the, the wrathful bow. And as a bow hunter, it makes me even just that much more intrigued by this. But he, he talks about the, the wrath of God's bow, how it is pointed down upon the unjust and the ungodly. In that moment, we see the Lord in His glory and in His weight line up the target. And it's the Egyptians. What is the Egyptians' response when they see the Israelites? These people are idiots. How dumb of them to do this. Like, what is Moses is a terrible leader. They're, this is idiotic in the schemes of warfare for this 200,000 to 2 million plus people to course correct and to turn around and to place themselves in an inescapable place. See, here's the deal, ladies and gentlemen, is that sin will often make us lose our minds. Sin, when the darker that you go into it and the layers of disobedience and the more that you disobey, the more that you disobey, the more that you disobey, what happens? You become illogical. You become irrational. You begin to justify everything and anything that you have done, no matter how light and petty you may believe that sin is or how grotesque that sin may be. When you are wallowing in sin, not following after the Lord, everything that you do that goes against Him can seem right to you. And yet the Lord is saying there is a different way. How many of you, sin has ever affected your ability to make clear decisions? And I'm not just talking about those sins where we have put substances into our bodies. Anybody ever paid stupid tax in here before? You did something and you thought it was awesome. And let's, let's be really honest. Let's quit telling our kids that sin isn't fun because it is a lot of fun. And if it's not fun, you're doing it wrong. It makes us lose our thinking. It turns us into a King Nebuchadnezzar. If you know the book of Daniel where uh, the king is being disobedient, he is becoming illogical, even so much that it turns him into a beast where the king is walking around on the grounds of the garden like, like some sort of, if you remember Beauty and the Beast, I, that's the picture that I get of this king. Like he is be completely deformed from himself. See, I would suggest that Jesus restores humanity, that you and I, because of sin, have actually become less 
human. And it is Jesus that restores our humanity. We're becoming more human the more that we are in Jesus. Perfect humans one day. Positionally, we already are. Practically, we will be one day. Makes us make irrational decisions. And so they think that they've got, man, we've got the, we've got the Israelites, we've got them trapped, so let's, let's go after them. So the Israelites go after them, and as they're riding, you just see this, like, just this, the derby was yesterday, so you get these thoroughbreds just riding, just, they're covered in armor. You've got, I just imagine Ben-Hur, if you've seen that movie, like just these chariots with blades coming out the sides of them. I mean, just ready to rip to shreds anything and everything. They are going to literally mow these people over. And, and not only do the Israelites see the cloud of God's glory that is leading them, but simultaneously they also see the cloud of the dust of the hooves of men and horses. And what do the Israelites do? Oh, it's all good. Look at all at what God has done. Praise be to glory. Lord, I lift your name on high. Right? Is that what we see them doing? No. They become fearful. And like Adam and Eve, what do they do in their sin? They begin to first blame God and two, blame their leadership. They blame God and they blame their leadership. If you have a kid, you've seen this partake. You've seen this activity. Right? If you've been in any sorts of leadership position, you have seen this take place. People will often want to blame shift. It's something that is found within our, the sinful nature of man is that when you're called on the carpet on something, the immediately first thing that you and I are all tempted to do is it's their fault. They did it. Or they caused me to do it. Or they led me down this pathway. This is the picture that we see inside of the Israelites. But again, God reminds them, why am I taking you out of Egypt? Did you notice the language there? Moses, there are no graves in Egypt for us. Is that what you're trying to say? But what do we all know that's in Egypt? They're really famous for it. Graves. Tombs. Pyramids. But there's no graves for us. You've led us out here to just die in the wilderness because there are no tombs erected for us. There are no cemeteries for us or however they did those types of things. They said it's better for us that we would go and serve the Egyptians than to be set free to serve God. And that's the whole reason of why God says that he is leading the people out. Remember, go back several chapters over and over and over again. He's like, I'm going to lead my people out. Let my people go so they may worship and what? serve me. And as soon as they get out of the city gates, they're already saying, man, we should have stayed there. It'd been better for us to be slaves to the Egyptians than to serve an almighty, holy God. You and I, just like the Israelites, are like one of the commentators said, we serve what we are afraid of. We serve what we are afraid of. Moses will go on in verses 13 through 14, which is one of the key passages here that we'll come back to in just a moment. But again, after we see this take place, is that uh, Moses tells them to, you know, to stand still. 
Fear not and see the salvation of the Lord. All you have to do is be silent and the Lord will fight for you. And so what takes place? We've all seen the Prince of Egypt. We've all seen the Ten Commandments. Hope you haven't seen the Exodus with Christian Bale. It was terrible. But anyway, we've seen these pictures now of as Moses stands upon the sea. But remember, this is taking place at night, unlike some of those movies show us. But this is taking place at night as God commands Moses um, through the raising of his staff and through the, the moving of the wind to take the Red Sea and to part it. The Israelites then go across on what's called dry land all the way to the other side. And then in the middle of the night, God through Moses and through the workings of his created order of things, as the, 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 the Egyptians believe, man, we can chase after these guys and gals and be fine and we'll get them and we'll kill them. But what do we see take place? We see that this mode of salvation was also an illustration of God's wrath. That it saved some and that it judged others. The Israelites on the next morning, they get over to the other side. And they're watching as these walls of water come crashing down on their greatest enemy. They're set free. They are delivered. Their enemies are no more. They're, not to be too grotesque here, but as they're rejoicing, the bodies of dead animals and people are washing up on the shore. And the Bible tells us that they changed their tune. They began to worship God. They began to appreciate Moses for a minute. We see this powerful story taking place. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to that passage where, let's read it again, verses 13 and 14. Um, where it says, And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. Now, quick raise of hand. I promise you'll be okay. Uh, anybody ever heard portions of that, that verse before? Okay. Uh, the Lord will fight for you. All you have to do is be silent. Please stop quoting that verse. Because it often doesn't mean the way that you're using it. It ranks right up there with I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. It ranks right up there with the most uh, misquoted passage in all of scriptures. Judge not. Only God can judge me. Alright? Judge not, lest ye be judged. If you grew up King Jimmy like I did. Right? That's, a, that's another passage you should not be quoting. You can't judge me. Nah, that's not what the Bible says, actually. It's talking about rightful judgment. Judge rightly is what the Bible declares. Right? And this passage right here ranks right up there in one of those misquoted. I mean, how many of us have ever seen in a situation where, where it's been when, when it's kind of like a, a six-shooter, it's been slung at you, like you're having a wrestling battle with something? Or even more so, you're wrestling with someone else. And a brother and sister in Christ, someone with really good intentions will come up to you and say, now brother and sister, 
All you needed to do is fear not, stand firm. You just need to be silent. You don't need to address that issue. Just be silent. The Lord will fight for you. Now, I know none of you have ever used it poorly and wrongly, but how many of you have ever experienced a, a, a conversation like that? Anybody? A few of you, right? Good intentions, terrible use of the Bible, all right? It does not bode well unless you use it contextually right on your Facebook page, your Twitter account, your Instagram. Be careful having it on a mug unless you really know what the passage is talking about. All right? Because what is the context? The context is, is they're complaining against God. They're yelling, screaming, pointing their fingers at God. They're swallowed up. I can't believe you, God, have led us out here. I can't believe you, Moses. Because when we can't see God, we want to see his, his, his follower. He wants to see our leader. We're going to shake our fist at him. Mad. You're angry. You're upset. They're complaining. They're, they're Take us back to slavery. Put us back in bondage. Put us back in those chains. And Moses, I believe filled with the Holy Spirit, steps in into a courageous, bold thing. And, and notice what he says. Fear not. He's saying, stop it. You're fearing the wrong thing. Then what's the next thing that he says? Stand firm. What's he getting at? He's like, like quit being wishy-washy. What's it going to be? Are you going to serve the Egyptians or are you going to serve God? Are you going to serve the Egyptians or are you going to serve God? He's saying stand firm and see what? Tell me. The salvation of of the Lord. So this passage is not about you and a co-worker getting upset and you're wondering how to deal with it, right? Somebody's offended you, you got a relationship issue, and so I just need to remember that I just need to stand firm, keep my mouth shut, pretend like it doesn't happen. The Lord will fight for you. That is not what this passage is about. What is the passage about? God is essentially saying this, be quiet, stand there, I'm about to go to work. It was about the people's salvation. The only thing they brought to the table was the need to be delivered. And they're undeserving at that. God is saying, all right, you need to just stand there, watch as I flex. I'm a child of the 80s. I grew up watching wrestling with it. It was real. And in that, there was this guy named Hulk Hogan. And he pretty much did the same match every time. He walked out, ripped off his yellow foam made of foam tank top, right? Darkly tan. He's got a skullet. If you know from Kentucky, you know what that is. And, and he's, he's in the middle of the ring. He, he starts winning, then he starts losing, right? And they get the bad guy, the heel is what they call him, lays on top of him, and it's like he's falling asleep. Anybody fall? Y'all didn't grow up watching, y'all have terrible parents. If you didn't watch wrestling in the 80s, 
All right. And, and this big old man is just laying, nasty, sweaty, big old man just laying on top of each other. You're just smashing him down like it's squeezing all the air out of him. And they take his arm, right? And it falls to the ground. Anybody remember this? And then they take the arm and it falls to the ground. And then they do it one more time and the match is over. And they take Hogan's arm. They raise it up in the air. And he goes, and he pauses. He starts shaking it. Right? And then he gets up on one knee, and he's shaking. And I watched a lot of this. And then, he's, and then the bad guy is freaking out, and what does Hulk Hogan do? He starts walking around the ring, shaking that skullet of his, like this right here. And he's like, and then he, he clotheslines him, goes against the back. Anybody see what? Drops a big leg, rolls over on him. And then people lose their mind to the great American hero. And all he does, it lasts longer than the wrestling match, is him walking around. Right? He goes like this. 24-inch python, say your prayers, eat your vitamins. All right? He's like, I'm going to do this. It's going to look like we're losing. And then I'm going to flex for all of my glory. Because it only makes sense for the crowd to erupt at the Lord who fights for his people. This passage is about salvation. The Israelites are not saved because of their outstanding character, are they? Or their obedience or their faithfulness. If you compare the Egyptians to the Israelites' actions and attitudes and affections, you will quickly realize there's not anything different between the Egyptians and the Israelites except for this. One found favor, undeservingly so, in God. God had chosen these people. He had elected these people. He had predestined these people. He had set his favor upon these people. This passage is about salvation. Sit down, you like disobedient children, and watch me save. Watch me do my thing. So in this, the difference between these two people groups, the Egyptians and the Israelites, is their God and a faithful mediator. All of this passage in Scripture, and again, all of the Bible and the Old and the New Testament, is why this continually is pointing to something even greater and better, and that is who? That is Jesus. From the very beginning of the Bible, something that is really scary, often seen in Scripture, is that of water. It is often called the abyss, that is this like, un, like uncontrollable, mysterious thing within creation. When God steps onto the scene to sing creation into order, the earth is, is, is without, uh, it's, it's a void, right? But we can kind of see this picture that, that there is something there. It's just not what we see now. And that on that is like this just abyss. You just imagine this like turbulent water is just covering everything. And yet, what does God say that he does? From the depths, he brings forth land. He brings the dry ground. 
Once we get to Genesis chapter 6, what is there again? Water, the abyss. These are the waters of judgment. In the story of Noah and the ark, the world was baptized in the flood of the waters of God's judgment. And it's through the waters of judgment that God disciplines, punishes unbelieving, unfaithful people. And yet, what do we see? God places even the chosen people, Noah and his immediate family, in an ark, in the raging abyss of his wrath. And the remnant is what? Saved. At the very beginning of Exodus, we see sin, Satan, and death in the form, I believe in the incarnated form, of a Pharaoh. And what does this Pharaoh do? He uses the Nile and twist it for his own wrath and judgment. And doing what? Attempting to kill all of the Israelite boys. And yet, what do we see? God places, even in the enemy's water of judgment, a little baby and an ark. And that ark goes with every ebb and flow until it reaches a safe destination. Now we see God's people. Their backs against their enemies and and the sea in front of them. And they're crying out, man, surely we will die. Surely we will die. On one side is death. On the other side is a, a new life, but, but how will we ever be able to accept what seems to be imp- impending doom? How will we ever be delivered? And then what happens? God shows up. Fear not. Stand in awe. I am here. And he takes the sea of his judgment and he splits that He splits that water of judgment, allowing undeserving Israelites to walk on dry ground from death to life. On one side is judgment. On the other side is salvation. And by that next morning, the Israelites will be standing saved from their enemy while judgment is poured out and decimates the Egyptians. What a picture of salvation. It is a literal picture of death and resurrection. Of death and resurrection. See, the Israelites come out on the other side a new people. They come out on the other side a new creation. They, They come out on the other side heading to a what? A new Land. This is why when you look at this picture, you can imagine this. Follow along with me because I don't have an image of this. But that people are standing on the other side of a, a body of water. It splits. And what do they do? They, they walk down 
in the depths of this water. It is walls upon walls of water next to them. They, they, they are on death door on this side. They walk down into the dry land. They follow this path. And then what do they do? They go up to get out on the other side of the bank. That's what a baptistry is. You step down into what is to be a moment of judgment for you and for me. You step into the pool of, of judgment. And what do we often say if we're good Baptists? By your profession of faith, I now baptize you, brother and sister in Christ. May you be buried in Christ. May you be risen in Christ. This is why Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 will equate this exodus to a baptism, and we'll point it further to the baptism of Christ, and, and uh, excuse me, to being baptized in Christ. See, in the New Testament, Jesus is who? Emmanuel, which means God with us. That God is with us. The people of God have once again gone into slavery. Not just physical slavery, but even more so, they've gone into spiritual slavery. They are separated from God. You and I, apart from Jesus, are separated from God. There is this great chasm between you and I. And yet, as God and the, the Godhead appointed before the foundations of the earth, that on this particular day, that God, the visible form of the invisible God would take on flesh, that he would be consecrated before the Lord, that he would come to earth, that he would take on this nature, that he would submit himself to the things of this earth and ultimately to God, that he would lay down his life as Emmanuel. Jesus is born and the, the angels show up to the shepherds and what's the first thing they say? Fear not! Fear not, I have good news for you. Great tidings of great joy for you. And the shepherds come, right? And then, and then the wise men end up coming sometime later. But immediately, what takes place inside of Jesus' life with Mary and Joseph? The Bible tells us that it wasn't very old, and the newborn and his parents had to flee. And where did they have to go? to Egypt. The people of God are living in the promised land for thousands and in it well in and out of the promised land for thousands of years. Jesus is born there and immediately there's a king, an antichrist filled with sin, Satan and death. And what is he wanting to do? King Herod, kill all the babies. And so Jesus has to go to Egypt. Why? Because that's where Israel had to go. 
And the Bible is telling us that Jesus is the true and better Israel. He is what the nation could not do. That He is the nation. And so He must go. He must go to Egypt. He must stay there. And in Gospel of Matthew, He quotes Isaiah, who is talking about the Exodus, and He equates that to who? He equates it to Jesus. From out of Egypt, my Son will come. And so Jesus lives there until He's safe. And then what does Jesus do? He leaves it. Over and over again, we see inside the passage that the salvific message and practice of Jesus is this picture of Israel and their exodus. I mean, have you ever wondered why did Jesus get baptized? Well, it was to remove his sin, right? No. The Bible says it was to fulfill all righteousness. He must, too, enter the sea. As the only righteous one, he redeems the story of even the crossing of the Red Sea. What is baptism? It is this physical representation of us in the Exodus story, but even in the true and better Exodus story that is found in Jesus, it is a picture of us going from death to life. We must not lose this connection, brothers and sisters and friends. The story of salvation in the New Testament is often referred and is illustrated as the greater exodus. Even Hebrews chapter 3, verse 3 says that Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses. Remember what's called the transfiguration? This is where Jesus is with his closest of friends. Peter, James, and John, they're up on top of a mountain. And all of a sudden, Jesus is like, I'm going to show you something real cool, right? And he like pulls back the veil. You guys follow me, right? Maybe you know this story. It's a great story. He like pulls back the veil. He's like, I'm going to show you my glory. And guess who's there? Moses and Elijah. And the Bible tells us in the Gospel of Luke that, 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 Luke, G, that Jesus, Moses, and Elijah are having this side conversation without Peter, James, and John. And you know what it's, they're talking about? The Bible in Luke chapter 9 tells us that they're talking about the departure that Jesus is about to do. The exact same Greek translation of the Hebrew word there is that they are talking about the exodus of Jesus. Exodus of Jesus. Jesus came to deliver His people due to their sin. There, again, this great chasm between us and God. And who would be His people? We stand. They stood. Condemned. We are. They were. Afraid. They want to live in the slavery of their own sin. You and I are prone to want to live in the slavery of our own sin. Jesus comes. He lives. He dwells among evil people. He leads them. He calls them to follow Me. And in response, they follow for a while. But at the end of Jesus' story, where are all of His closest followers? They have abandoned Him. Because at the cross, brothers and sisters, we see Jesus plunged once again into the waters of God's wrathful judgment. He's called to drink it all. Upon the cross, Jesus is baptized, fully immersed, buried in the tomb of God's wrath, 
And he does this alone. Jesus follows God even unto the point of death. He is completely submerged as he, as he walks from, from this place in this position down into the very belly of death itself alone because only God can keep his covenant with his people. And so God, Jesus, the incarnated Christ comes down and he lives and he walks and he drinks in all of the wrath that you and I deserve. He is baptized completely in it and he says it is good, it is well, it is finished because I will be baptized in God's wrath. You now can go and live in my resurrection as a new people, as a new church, as a new person heading for a new destination. The difference between a follower of Jesus and a non-believer is a faithful mediator and his name is Jesus. Friend, look at me. Which, which side of the sea do you stand on? You are still either standing in death Or you're standing in life, which is only found in Jesus. Let's pray.